Welcome to the DLR Libraries podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. So Madeline Beach Carey is the author of the short story collection, Les Filles Dels Ultres. Her work has appeared, or is forthcoming, in El Mondei, Derail, or I See Jour- Journal, The Sultan's Seal, The Momentist, Southward, Full Stop, and Elsewhere. Carrie has been the recipient of awards and fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Edward Albee Foundation, Faber Residency, Hawthorndon Castle, Greywood Arts and Bentsville's House. Carrie teaches writing workshops at the Irish Writers' Centre as well as privately. And born in Baltimore, Maryland, she lives in Barcelona, Spain. And for many years, she's worked as a political speechwriter, but now dedicates her time to other kinds of fictions. So th- thanks for joining me today, Madeline. You're very welcome. Thank you, Harry. So how I met you is, um, or got talking to you online, is you've recently been running, been running a writing workshop at the Irish Writers' Centre, which is designed for people writing about their, their home country um, whilst living or having lived far from their place of birth or the place they call home. And they're your words then from the course. With, with that idea in mind of, of writing personal memoir or essay, and uh, I did this course with you as someone who has moved a lot and grown up abroad, and, and I found it really, really interesting and helpful, um, especially hearing all the stories from all the other participants who have lived and are living all around the world. And we kind of all shared the, the interest in the idea of what belonging means and different ideas of home. The text we looked at um, were related to these similar experiences experiences that the writers were having or sort of dual nationality or emigration those types of things so maybe you can tell me a little bit about why you chose this topic and and what what drew you to it yeah so I um I've always been really interested in fiction that deals with exile and migration and I think it actually became even more pertinent when Um, COVID started. I was having some difficulties with the novel I was, I'm still working on because the novel is about migrations um, and there's a lot about borders being closed and this idea of who can cross which borders. And then all of a sudden, um, everything that I was making up in the novel became very real in like my daily life. And it was sort of the conversation that I was having with my partner on a very daily basis. And and I had taught a similar course actually in person in Barcelona, but I decided to sort of pitch it to the Irish Writers' Center because I had been in Ireland on a residency right before COVID began. And I felt really at home there and so it was sort of um, emotionally like the last place I had felt normal. That was in yeah. February of 2020. Um, and I was at Greywood Arts in East Cork. So I, I wrote to the Irish Writers' Centre because I thought, you know, I mean, this is such an important topic in Irish literature anyway. Yeah. And it was a really nice, the first time I taught the course, I think was in autumn of 2020 via Zoom. And I had all these great students from all different places. Um, So Mm -hmm. some were Irish living abroad, 
some more people living in Ireland who aren't from there. For me, it's just this wonderful chance to sort of introduce people to some of my favorite writers. I always like to use some sort of theme instead of just teaching from a craft perspective. Because I think, I, I don't know, I think it also is a better way to build community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, People yeah. sort of ended up later making their own writing groups or working together because they had sort of common interest in their projects. Yeah, yeah, we definitely felt that. We started one, so we felt that it just was really, we felt sort of seen and mirrored in each other's experiences, mm-hmm. even though they were all so completely different. Yeah. Um, it was really kind of reassuring and something I probably would never have thought to have done if I hadn't sort of read the, the sort of description of the course and just felt like it was like for me. You know? oh, that makes me really happy. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I didn't even really, hadn't really put it into words that I would be very interested in reading about that. But then I'm like, of course, it makes sense that that sense of belonging and moving, which is so... I mean, it's, it's so common, right, in, in all of our experiences nowadays. Yeah. But I think for some people, it is emotionally more important and, and part of their work. Um, that's why the, the call that, that I'm glad that it spoke to you on writing home, I mean, what does this mean? It doesn't really mean anything specifically. It could just be letters home. It could be this description about this sort of more ideal home like something that we Mm -hmm. find in someone like Edward Said that we'll talk about later right yeah this 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 imaginary geography you invent in certain ways to talk about your rightful place in the world Um, for me it's also really interesting I think because I live away from my native language I work away from my native language Um, And a lot of Irish writers have had that experience as well, especially people who lived and worked in France, so. And are are they the kind of stories that you're drawn to outside of the the coursework um, that you were doing? Would you be drawn to sort of writers of all different nationalities? Yeah, definitely. Experiences as a sort of a thing you look for? Hmm, That's a really good question. I'm not sure if I look for it consciously. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think I am drawn to people who sort of write in maybe either as exiles or from a space that isn't theirs. Um, yeah. yeah. If that makes sense. Or yeah. in a space. I also teach a course about using foreign language in fiction. Um, so I'm, I'm also very drawn to that, I think, because... I think if you have learned a foreign language and sort of write in it, even if you're writing your fiction in English, it influences it a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, you did some really interesting exercise, writing exercises, and I think you might have said that you don't typically like doing writing exercises, but you do find that they can be helpful. But um, there were some really... I did, we all find them quite helpful, and we, we, we said that in our writing groups. But... Um, particularly when like going back if you're looking at writing memoir which is what we're talking about today Mm -hmm. sort of going back to like the years before you were born and what your city might have been like or what your family was like before and just as a sort of exercise to to think about place and um just a bit I suppose just a visual tool almost to imagine 
world's yeah. a little bit different before you were around and I, I find that really helpful because it starts you start thinking about generations and family and it kind of gets you on that path but um I'm glad you like that that exercise I always say for me that's like this very fertile ground for writing is sort of the world right before you entered it's sort of a decade before you were born I think also because we hear so many stories about that time when yeah. our parents were young before we were on the scene we see yeah. um, photographs, but we don't have conscious memory of it. But yeah. It's very much in our subconscious. So I, I like that as a place to write about and from. Whether you're working on fiction or memoir, and we'll get to that maybe when we talk about the, the three books today, because I, I just think it's really where imagination so often springs from. Because, yeah, I think it, it, it sort of makes you feel a bit important or something, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like, yes. even though the stuff happened before you, it sort of, I think it just links you in to history, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you want to feel important if you're going to start writing about yourself. So, so like today we're talking about your theme um, that you've chosen to talk about is the will to live, memoir writing and personal essays. Um, and you kind of covered this, but what, what do you find so fascinating about memoir or um, what drew you to these books? You know what? I, it's really interesting because I, I, I don't think of myself as someone who reads that much memoir. Like I, I definitely tend to read more fiction and poetry. I had a lot of difficulty during COVID with reading and it scared me. Um, At the beginning, I don't know how you found it. I I couldn't read fiction. I I couldn't stay focused. And so I just every morning would read a poem and that was like all I could do. And then I re- and then I was able, like a few months in, to read some novels, but they had to be like pretty, pretty engaging. I I could yeah. there were there were things that I normally would read and really engage with that for some reason I I couldn't. Um, I felt my brain felt very fragmented, and I started reading a lot of um, like literary biography, and that was great. I really liked yeah. it. And then. Um, I went back and read Out of Place by Edward Said, and I just loved it. I had sort of forgotten how much I had liked it the first time I read it. And I, I just found it remarkable. Like, I thought, wow, this is really his novel. Um, mm-hmm. And his recent biographer talks about that, that he had, you know, Saeed always wanted to write a novel and he never managed to do so. But I'm not sure that it matters because we got this novel out of him. And I loved the structure and I loved that he was so complicated and almost unlikable in many ways, but that he was so insistent on like explaining his vision which is very, and, and his awkwardness in the world. It's such an emotional book. I, I think when I originally read it, I read it in this context of sort of graduate school classes and, and his work on Orientalism. And I, am, I read it in a more political way. And mm-hmm. I loved going back and just thinking how he had always felt unsure of his place in the world. 
And this idea that upon receiving this terminal diagnosis, he was like hell bent on writing his version and giving us this thread of his life. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I came yeah. up with this idea of the will to live. And I think during the pandemic, there, there was this moment for a lot of us sort of of a crisis of meaning. And so Said's memoir and then um, Deborah Levy's wonderful real estate and then the Tove Ditlevison, um, it's also a memoir. They were these books that made me feel as if someone was so determined to show us their vision of the world, which mm-hmm. is what good fiction does as well, right? I'm not sure that it matters that they're memoir. Yeah, yeah. We, you, we already know them as established writers and, and very yeah. good, but this sort of fills in the gaps of their struggle, I guess, or just their kind of, it's not day to day, but it structures their yeah. struggle, which I think is yeah. what I found so important because I think I was looking for structure, if that exactly. makes sense. Some, yeah, just to cling on to something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, maybe we'll start with Edward Said's book because um, you were talking about it there, um, Out of Place. Yeah. Um, so we did a little bit of this in, the, in your class. Um, yeah, I think we read two sections in the class. Yeah, and we were talking about sort of the idea of vanished worlds, which is, it's like his tribute to his childhood, isn't it? Um, where he moved, he moved a lot, but in, in Palestine, in Lebanon, and um, I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I talk a lot in the course about this idea of vanished worlds, which, which I think perhaps of all the authors we look at in the course, it's probably Said and Claire Massoud that work with them the best, I think. Um, so Edward Said gives us this, this portrait of Cairo, right? I think when we begin reading the book, we think we're going to read about Palestine, but mm-hmm. the fact that he was born in Palestine is almost an accident of history. Yeah, um, we get this beautiful story. His mother was in labor in Cairo, and a very supposedly modern doctor gave her perhaps too much medication, and the baby boy was born dead. And so Edward Said's parents decided to have the next birth back home in Palestine. Um, and he, that birth was attended to by a Jewish midwife. So he was born in Palestine, but of course grew up, as you said, um, in Egypt, in this mm-hmm. world that is sort of this lost world of people from the Levant, um, which today, you know, we would call Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, but there's this sort of one cultural world and many people and people made a life there that um that society has later disappeared and he gives us such a beautiful vision of it i found and and the portrait of his parents is so rich we get all the problematic dealings with his father um his father seems so different from his son a a bit more of a bombiban 
right? I think yeah. his father seemed, and then, and we have his mother who's extraordinarily difficult. <laughs> yeah. She just uh, kept sending him on errands all the time and to keep him busy in a way and, and yeah. to, to worship her, but um, as a lot of people do, we have a difficult relationship as well. Yeah, I love, he, he speaks about um, the fact that his mother was always dividing him and his sisters, right? Um, yeah. She had sort of these bilateral relations with, with the children. It's an interesting book because the portraits of the parents are quite harsh. So I think we're reading this and, you know, he, his parents are dead by the time he's writing and he knows that his days or at least years are numbered. So I think he is able to give us like this very sort of scathing emotional portrait. And I think that's why the book is, is so good, right? And yeah. maybe why it reads as seemingly honestly as a novel might because he has nothing to fear. I yeah. mean, the only ones who might complain at this point are his sisters. And yeah, his dad was very, a kind of a, real, a weird mix of very frugal, like they had very sparse, they take holidays in, where do they go? go? to the, Lebanon. Lebanon. Because his, his yeah. mother is from there. Yeah. yeah. So they he, had, and they'd have nothing in, like sparsely furnished, yeah. really austere. But then at the same time, the dad was ordering constant, like, He'd go. His hobby was to go into shops and order food, or to order things to be sent back to the house. Or when he was in America, he'd send back clothes that didn't fit them. Yeah. So he kind of had these kind of strange, <laughs> contradictory traits. Yeah, I love that. That when they're on um, summer vacation in sort of like this resort town in Lebanon, uh, they have what they call Protestant dinners. These yeah. very austere dinners, which is so different than sort of my association with um, cuisine and meals from that part of the world. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, his father has U.S. citizenship, mm -hmm. also by these strange accidents of history. You know, his father had, had fought against the Ottomans and therefore had this U.S. passport. And his father, in some ways, is very, very proud of that. Mm -hmm. um, and he likes this American food and they have turkey for Thanksgiving and he gives us all of this strangeness, right? Mm -hmm. And his mother, on the other hand, um, has this very important Lebanese identity and is really the one who teaches him Arabic. And he sort of lives between these two languages, right? Where yeah. he, he's not seen as an Arab amongst Arabs all the time, but he's also not fully seen as American. Mm -hmm. he, and he's also very much a New Yorker yeah. at times, but not always seen as that. Um, yeah, he does he say as a child, he had a Brit, uh, he realized he had a British name. Yes. An Arabic name, so Arabic surname and an American passport. Yes. And so he was this sort of, this mix of things that didn't belong with either of them or, yeah. but, but he was all of them as well. Yeah. And he becomes sort of like um, the spokesperson and enemy because of those things. Right. So amongst Palestinians, mm -hmm. he's American and therefore mm -hmm. not, not fully trusted. Americans, he's Arab and therefore not fully trusted. 
in the class we did this exercise about names. Yes, yeah, that was another good one. <laughs> Because, um, I mean, it seems something like something so simple, but, you know, so many people have these complications, right? Like on passports, names get changed and misspelled. And um, especially when the foreign names, you get this strange transliteration. But those things are very defining, right? How, how we go about dealing with that. Um, yeah, you might you spend your life explaining them to people. <laughs> yeah, you and know. you sort of make, I think you also sometimes use them as a costume or a mask. Yeah. You know, you, you, you make up the story that serves you best with, with each person. It's a puzzle. Uh, and then you kind of, I guess, with these memoirs, people are kind of putting it all together at the end of their life and realizing that it is... They are all these things and it's kind of made them, but when you're at their childhood years, it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels very confusing. Yeah. Um, he said, true, my mother told me that I had been named Edward after the Prince of Wales, who cut so fine a figure in 1935, the year of my birth. And Said was the name of various uncles and cousins. But the rationale of my name broke down both when I discovered no grandparents called Said and when I tried to connect my fancy English name with its Arabic partner. For years, and depending on the exact circumstances, I would rush past Edward and emphasize Said, and at other times I would do the reverse, or connect these two to each other so quickly that neither would be clear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's how he... He opens the book, all families invent their parents and children, give each of them a story, character, fate, and even a language. And I love that beginning. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think Said is also sort of a translator. Yeah. Between all these different worlds, he's constantly having to explain someone else's language and culture to He's like this representative and spokesperson, which is yeah. such an uncomfortable way to live. We talk about Tove Ditlifison. Is that how you say it? <laughs> I think so. You know what? Ditlifison. Yeah, I've, I've listened to a few people with British or Irish accents speaking about her and they pronounce it one way and then Americans pronounce it another. So I think yes. we're just doing our best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, once we've set, we can just call her Tove now. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because we don't speak Danish. Well, I don't. I don't think you do either. <laughs> no. Yeah, so the next two are our trilogies. So, so you know, it's going to... I might seem a little bit strange because these books are often described as terribly depressing and I was yeah. sort of afraid to read these um, because so many people had talked about them but they said you know I, I heard the translator of dependency say that he broke down while he was translating this book and it was so difficult and I thought oh god I don't know if I want to read this yeah right during such a difficult time I find her voice so amazing and actually yeah. life-affirming which might mean that yeah. I need like psychiatric evaluation but I <laughs> love <laughs> yeah um, this trilogy um she she just for really quickly if people aren't familiar um she 
she's a very well-known Danish poet. I mean, she's, she's a famous figure in, in Denmark and um, she, her statue is in parks and our streets. Yeah. And she wrote quite, quite a lot. But th this trilogy was just recently published in, in English. Childhood Youth Dependency. I read them all together. They're, they were published um, in one volume by Penguin. I was just blown away by, by her prose. I found especially the first two, Childhood and Youth, so beautiful. Her descriptions of this working class Copenhagen that was at once so foreign to me, but felt so familiar because I think we yeah. all... Um, can sort of relate to that, the hostility of childhood and feeling trapped. Harshness of elders. Or, yeah. yeah. She does. A, and then youth, I, I love the descriptions of her sort of boring office jobs. People that you encounter um, outside of your home seem so important at that young age. And I think when I was thinking about this theme of the will to live, I I was so impressed actually with like the honesty of her ambition. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not ruining things for people who want to yeah. read it because it's, it does, it's not about plot or um, spoilers because her prose is just so, it's like, it's so clean. It's very frank and, and there's yeah. there, I have it with the book here. Oh, you it's have very, a, yeah, yeah I've, only, I've only read the first one. Um, okay, well I'm going to give but, something yeah. away. She, yeah. she marries this editor yeah, and she just, she doesn't love him. She doesn't even like him. She just needs to get her book published. Yeah, no, I have read that in a review. So like she, she's very clear that she wants to be a writer. It's kind of all she's dreamt about since she was young and um, it seems so unlikely. So she's kind of, I guess, these not, not what she has to do, but she's like, this is what I want to do to get there. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, and and I, I find that there's something so magnetic about these books because she, she knows herself so well. By dependency um, is about her, her drug addiction, mm -hmm. but she knows that she's an addict. Yeah, and she sort of knows that she'll never be cured. So there's just there's this sort of self-actualization that that I found absolutely incredible. And even though you know she's she marries four times, she has these very dependent relationships with men. There was something I found liberating about her vision and and the mm -hmm. prose just how sure she was that she wanted to be a writer and how yeah. really sometimes nothing else mattered because i i do think um it, it's so important sometimes to have that sort of vision in life in order to get things done if not i just i think a lot of us sort of we let things go mm -hmm. um, and we pretend that something else might be good enough even yeah. though it might really not be, but we're sort of willing to give ourselves these other comforts. And there's something that I love about the fact that she won't be comforted by anything else. And she probably, it probably looks like strange choices, but it's kind of what she had to do to overcome her class and her gender, I guess, yeah. as well. I did listen to a bit of a podcast with uh, Claire Louise Bennett, 
for the Museum of Literature Ireland recently. And, yeah, and she, I listened to that as well. Yeah, so she, she likens it to a room of one's own, hmm. um, which I think so links in with Deborah Levy's one as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just it seems so, so unfair that that thing she wants is so hard. Well, it wasn't hard for her. She got it, you know. But, um, she did it, get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's why I'm, not, I'm I mean the 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 last volume is is quite brutal and there is there's a description of of an abortion and there's a description of her um going under surgery for for an ear infection mm-hmm. that are are very difficult to read she did get what she wanted. So that made me also think about why is memoir necessary? Um, and and some, there's something I liked about sort of the orderliness of these books. Like they're very structured and neat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Even though they come out of all this pain and chaos. Yeah. And so we are able to get that, right? It's like this, almost like this crystalline fragment of her life that, that she has left us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I just, I find it really, really remarkable. For me, these books made me think about the Ferrante no- novels that are my favorite, sort of before the, um, the Napoleon. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I like Ferrante's earlier work and I hadn't read anything in a long time that spoke to me in the way that um, Ferrante's first three novels spoke to me, but this seems somehow related. And it's also this idea that Ferrante expresses really well that it's sort of like whatever women have, like it can be taken away from you so quickly. Yeah. Like yeah. all the gains that we've made or the gains that you can make in a life, they can yeah. just be ripped out of your hands. And, and I, I, there's something that I liked after reading that about being so sure that I wouldn't allow that to happen. Um, yeah. Somehow for me, why the books seem life-affirming, even yeah. though it's a very, very sad story about a woman basically killing herself through, through dr- drug addiction. Yeah. But there's something strong in her spirit. Yeah, and she's not, well, I've only with, read the first one, as I said, but she's not sentimental. No. Um, so, which makes it easier to read and probably makes it easier for to, to read the last one about addiction as well. Um, yeah, she's so, extraordinarily frank. Yeah, yeah. Because I did read a review, um, I think it might have been The New Yorker, I'm not sure, um, where the, the, the writer was saying she was shocked that so many people were shocked by... <laughs> dependency like you were saying you you didn't think you should enjoy it because it sounded so harrowing but you did and and that writer was sort of saying the same thing I can't remember her name right now but um she was saying she was shocked by so many reviews that were saying they were so disturbed by the descriptions of her addiction but it's and that she didn't find that she found it like really intriguing and yeah yeah peace be told yeah, I didn't find it. I mean, yes, it's it's dis- disturbing and there are parts that are difficult to read, but upon finishing, I didn't feel sad. Yeah. I thought a lot about Jean Rhys. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because she's someone else who I know some people are like, oh, I can't do it. I don't, I don't want to read her. It's so depressing. But I never mm. find her depressing. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I'm so impressed by, by, by the writing. The, the fact that there are like these very um, sad stories about women's lives, I think I'm so intrigued by the structure mm-hmm. and the beauty of the prose that no, for me, they're not depressing yeah. books to read. And to be able to recount an experience of addiction, it's interesting for, for us all to read, um, yeah. whether we've had it or not. Um, yeah, so that was, um, d- uh, d- it was opioid d- Demerol that she's addicted to, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. of course is interesting, right? Because I mean, the drugs are a bit different, but this is still happening to so yeah. many people. I mean, especially in the US, there, there's this terrible you know, opioid c- crisis. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure how much difference it makes, like what drug it is. Yeah. People just um, get sucked into the, and, and I mean, yeah. She, the parallels she draws, right? Like between writing and that, that moment of the high, right? And how mm. she's sort of like in this twilight space. Mm. And do you think that contributed to, because she committed suicide, was the addiction part of that? Or it's probably hard to say. I mean, it certainly seems like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I, that, that's what I'm saying. It's a bit strange to yeah. say. I found her memoir life affirming. Like a few years later, she she killed herself. Um, but but there's something about like great beauty and art that I think yeah. instead of making us depressed, it's it makes us want to write in the way that she does. And sometimes, yeah, to know that this is what it takes someone sometimes to to write this openly or to be that yeah. successful. Um, and you're not alone. She's, they're so popular. <laughs> like they're, yeah. Yeah. Really beautiful editions as well. Um, the Penguin versions. So we talk about, we move on to Deborah Levy. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. So, Deborah Levy. So as I said at the beginning, I, I, I don't think of myself as someone who reads all that much memoir. I think usually, I, I mean, mostly I read fiction and I write fiction. Um, and I originally read um, a novel by Deborah Levy, Hot Milk. Um, and I, I teach Hot Milk in the class I do on foreign language and fiction because um, Greek and Greece is very important in that novel. But I don't like Deborah Levy's novels as much as I like these three books that she calls her living autobiography I don't know if you've read any of the novels Haley no I think I might have started hot milk because I work in a library I I do tend to start books and like put them down and think I'll come back to them Um, because I'm not buying them and I you know it just feels easier (laughs) but um yeah I might have had a similar reaction I wasn't sure if it was for me um but then we did cost of living I'm in a, a feminist book club which um, we haven't met in a long time actually but we that was one of the books that we did and yeah we, we loved that second one isn't it yeah. yeah so she she has these three books that she calls a living autobiography so they're things I don't want to know the cost of living and then this um, third one real estate that just came out this year um, and I think 
I read, I don't know when I read things I don't want to know, but I loved it. Mm -hmm. And then I saw her speak. No, and then I read The Cost of Living and I saw her speak in Barcelona. She was um, given the George Orwell Prize for, I, I think the prize sort of recognize, recognizes like political writing in the spirit of George Orwell. Okay, yes. Yeah. I think it was in 2019 that I saw her. And oh, she was just such a good speaker and such a good yeah. reader. You know, and I thought mm -hmm. about, okay, she's from this world of the theater and she's mm -hmm. written plays, but she just lit up the auditorium. I don't know how to explain it. She just, she has this wonderfully expressive face and such a beautiful voice. Um, and I went back and I read the two living autobiograph autobiographies again, and I loved them more and more. And maybe I was also getting older and thinking so much about how there's just no blueprint for women's lives. Like once you're 35 or 40, if you're not like going down the regular path, like if you don't have children, then you can have a career. And I find those two options terribly boring. Mm -hmm. And also just not the way so many people that I know have lived their lives. And so we're just sort of floating with no, like, what are the rites of passage? What is next? How do you judge success when society is sort of telling you that you're already a failure. So I was always looking for women sort of writing about experience through middle age. And she does it so incredibly and so honestly. Yeah, and, um, and humorously and it's, it's yeah. joyous, joyous to read. It's so joyous to read. And there were moments um, when I was reading real estate where I thought, all right, I don't know, you know, maybe Maybe this is like a bit bourgeois and silly. I mean, I'll never own a house. Um, and shouldn't I be reading about things that really matter and, you know, working so that our lives are less precarious? And then I thought, well, no, it's also really fun to imagine owning a house yeah. the way that Deborah Levy does here. So um, in this book, she, she takes stock of her life as she's about to turn 60. Um, and she makes this sort of list of real estate, what she has, what she's going to leave to the world, what will be left for her daughters, what will be left for other people. Um, and she's imagining this, this grand house where people will gather. And it was so fun to be allowed to do that with her. But I also, and I, I don't want this to sound like new agey at all, because I think I'm not like that. Um, there was something I liked about her insistence on like marking things in your life and deciding what you really want. Mm -hmm. um, she has a great birthday party in Paris with a DJ. And I thought, <laughs> I want to celebrate my 60th birthday. Like I never celebrate birthdays because I've always been taught and believed that those things are frivolous. Yeah. But sometimes it's okay. Yeah, to, definitely. Like, write things and celebrate yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I haven't read that that one, um, but I know. Oh, it's so enjoyable. I think actually so, it might be the most joyous one. 
Yeah, yeah. Now my friend was saying that who's in the feminist book up with me. She's read that one and she loved it. She said it was so enjoyable. Like you yeah, say. it's also like a celebration of friendship. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, the book is a very much about her as a writer, what she's written and where she's written and what she's going to write next. So it's about her daughters leaving, her youngest daughter is leaving home um, because the 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 book before was sort of about her life after divorce, which also yeah. was really important to me because I think I also made a life after a divorce. And I think it's something that we sort of, once again, think about as like this frivolous topic, but it's extraordinarily important. And it's actually yeah. like quite feminist. Yeah. Um, but she, yeah, she does that so well to sort of... Doesn't she? She moves into a, a flat with her daughters and she gets an electric bike and it's just it's starting anew, but it's really like simple things like, you know, fixing plumbing and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like working in a sort of cold shed, her writing shed. And um, so I, I, is, there, is there real estate like that as well? Like she's looking, it is. She's it's, still it's, trying to figure things out. Yeah, so it's like 10 years on. So if you think about like, she, okay, she she has like the cold writing shed. Here she has to get rid of the shed. Okay. She has to find a yeah. new place to work. And she's funny. She says, it seemed that I was now busy making the new writing shed look quite similar to my old writing shed, which I love because I think we all do that. Like we think we're making yeah. a new life and we put like the same knickknacks everywhere. And she travels a lot. So this book, I mean, it came out after COVID, but she decided yeah. not to make any changes, which I think was, well, it's kind it of rather escapist yeah. because yeah. you get to go to India with her and you have this super fun time traveling to Paris and she goes to Berlin. And friends are so important in this book. And, and I really loved that because, yeah. because it really showed like how she had fully sort of made that change, like out of the wreckage of like the nuclear family, she has mm-hmm. made this like bigger life yeah. um, with, other, with other people who are all a little bit different from her, but give her. So she says, yes, I had one e-bike locked up under the tree and two more in the garage. Friends came to stay from all over the world and we cycled around London together. It was a gesture towards a life I wanted. That is to say, an extended family of friends and their children. An expanded family rather than a nuclear family, which in this phase of my life seems a happier way to live. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah that's hopeful isn't it and it's really it reassuring so <laughs> yeah if you're kind of looking for a life lesson there it's you know it's just it's nice to think it's just it's not about being overly ambitious or which she is as well but um you you can you know have a simple life have family friends and try and be happy that way I kind of like that yeah. and she like her, <laughs> asked her what she wants for her 60th birthday and she wants an ice cream maker which I love and like she's gonna yeah. make this wonderful ice cream that she tasted in India. So, and the images are very beautiful. Um, I mean, no, I mean, Deborah, you know, she's sort of surrealist in a lot of ways. So we get like these very surreal descriptions of her travels and of this dream house that she wants. 
and mm -hmm. of swimming in Greece. And, and it's a very embodied text. Like there are all these things about her, like her physical self in the world that I found so beautiful about the way she walks yeah. and the way she holds herself. And that spoke to me about what I had seen when I saw her speak. Yeah, yeah, um, it rang true. Yeah, she's just, it's like, I, she's just regal and majestic and the book feels that way. Yeah. And again, not that it matters, but they're kind of slim, slim books. I, I, yeah. like, I like the challenge of, of or the, the non-challenge of those, they're of truth, and the big yes. text. So they're kind of fun to read. Yeah, they're quite, I have like the little, uh, well, no one can see us. I'm like, oh, yeah, that. I have this one. <laughs> yeah, they're quite nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, like just to read on holiday or on an airplane, you know. Yeah, like yeah. They're quick reads and, and very, very beautiful. And I like this idea of the living autobiography because it's not really about her telling. It's not a memoir. It's, it's her writing her way to the next stage. Yeah, I guess and giving love. herself permission to to be wrong or to make a change in the next one. <laughs> yeah, know? or just writing as this way of like um, envisioning what we truly want. Yeah. Like I'm not sure that you can really just think about what you want. You find out so much more about yourself by writing it. Yeah, yeah. And so they're kind of, they're not in, well, they are chronological, but they're they're kind of odd times she's chosen, just, just sort of a little bit yeah. random. Yeah, they are sort of, I, I, they're sort of, they're 40s, 50s, and then turning 60. Yeah. Which again, so you kind of have like lived enough life that there is yeah. a memoir part. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and these parts about her childhood. In the second one, there's a lot about her mom. Her mom is ill by that point. Um, but but you still have so you have time like you've got to figure mm -hmm. out what you're going to do with the time so the clock is kind of ticking yeah so she so she has to make these decisions about the life that she wants yeah um and to me it's such a portrait of a writer because the way that she makes her life and the way that she makes like a more beautiful reality is through words like she yeah. literally writes as a way mm -hmm. to predict her future. And I've always loved that idea. Like I never set out to write in order to record reality. I always set out to write the thing I want and how kind of, I wish kind of figuring it out. Like but even, I even believe in like the capacity of changing it. Like yeah. that you can predict that something will happen and by writing it, it, can yeah yeah so it's almost manifesting a bit yeah. Or, yeah yeah um so maybe you talk about what you're working on at the moment yeah i um, i have a few new stories coming out maybe i'll i don't know what i'll do with them maybe i i'll put them into another collection and i'm trying to finish um my novel manuscript it's it's a novel about migrations it's set in Mexico, the U.S., and Croatia. Okay. Um, and when I began writing it, uh, it was set in a, in a near future where 
um, a lot of borders were closed and people couldn't travel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a bit of a crisis. Yeah. But I'm back. But, but it's more relatable now, it's really. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I don't know. That had never happened to me. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great. Mm-hmm.